It's Wednesday, July 5th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Brought to you, as always, from Brooklyn, home of Bill de Blasio and his soon-to-be ex-wife, though not really, not officially, Charlene McRae. You know, sometimes I wish I lived in, I don't know, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, someplace that is more basic. Because if I lived in a basic place where the mayor could be whoever the mayor was, but wouldn't feel the need to tell us all about who the mayor was dating or who the mayor was married to or if the marriage is going well. And I'm not even talking about the current mayor. If I lived in Indianapolis, would we care about the ex-mayor? But I was just reading in the New York Times, of course it was in the New York Times, that Mr. de Blasio and Ms. McRae are separating. They are not planning to divorce, they said, but will date other people. They will continue to share the Park Slope townhouse where they raised two children, now in their 20s, ba 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 ba. Okay. Thanks for telling us. I guess this is to forestall a scandal if we see Bill de Blasio out on the town with some woman other than Charlene McRae, some woman who gets to date Bill de Blasio. Here's some more from the New York Times article. You should know that Charlene McRae in 1979 wrote a pretty well-read essay, I Am a Lesbian, and she never actually identified as anything. She tried not to identify that much as anything other than that. She didn't say, well, I realized I was bisexual. She was sort of blasexual. She was attracted to women, as noted in her landmark essay, and also Bill de Blasio. So here's the New York Times writing about this. As with much about their marriage, its strain is imbued with civic resonance. A decade after the pair became what was then the most significant and dissected biracial couple in American politics. And as with much about their marriage, again, using that construction, they see lessons for others, even in its tumult, both for workaday couples negotiating the challenges of growing old together and the small subset who expose themselves to the uncommon glare of public scrutiny. Can you just break up and not see a lesson in anyone else? It's just a thing that happened. You have your own relationship. Blas is out on the town. Charlene McRae free to do whatever she wants. Please don't make it a lesson to us. The less I know, the happier I am. The former mayor claims he does not believe in online dating, but ladies who might be searching on Hinge, just so you know, if you come across someone describing himself as 62 years old, six foot seven, who enjoys working out in one specific Y in Brooklyn, who once dropped a groundhog on its head, killing it, just know that if you swipe left or right, or whichever way one swipes to date a former municipal official, he's probably going to be at least 15 minutes late for your first meetup. On the show today, that was just a dumb thing about a dumb thing. My analysis will be of Joe Biden's possibly packing the court, a dumb worry about an impossible thing. But first, Irrational Labs is a company full of product designers and behavioral scientists. Evelyn Gosnell is such a behavioral scientist. She has worked for some of the biggest social media platforms out there, redesigning to limit harm, to make user experiences better and better in this case, doesn't just mean longer, more intense, and more remunerative for the companies. Companies like TikTok, Meta, you know the sites. The managing director of Irrational Labs, Evelyn Gosnell, up next. Listen. 
We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Evelyn Gosnell is a managing director of Irrational Labs. Wait, that shouldn't be a disqualifier. In fact, it's a qualifier. She's a social scientist. She looks at behavioral science and, when hired to do so by a company, helps them uh, increase their footprint in the world, increase their effectiveness, increase their profits. But often, and I know everyone who's hired by a company like TikTok or Lyft is going to say this, but often what she does is actually improve the world a little bit by, say, combating misinformation, which even TikTok doesn't want. She knows about the psychology of money and how people make connections. I've been reading a lot about her work, and I realized I've been experiencing her work when I interact with uh, certain apps. Evelyn, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me. What's your exact degree in or academic background? Funny that you ask. It's actually in cultural anthropology. So a kind of an odd origin story that I grew up as a child of U.S. diplomats. So all around the world, including in Russia. So that's a whole separate conversation. But the end result of all this moving around and living in different countries made me very, very curious about humans and what makes us the same and what makes us different and why do we function in the way that we do. So I originally started in cultural anthropology, graduated and realized, hmm, <laughs> need to pay the bills. Um, so ended up as a marketer and product manager. And I would say almost accidentally stumbled upon behavioral science, behavioral economics, and realized, wow, this is a really powerful toolkit. Number one, it's just fascinating, right? I, part of my light bulb moment was like, wow, people are paid money to have fun all day. Um, but second, um, just as a toolkit of of understanding how humans actually operate, how we actually make decisions. And so how can we use that toolkit to solve for good, right? So things like present bias that we all experience. We overvalue the present against the future, which makes certain things hard. We don't exercise enough as we might want to when we say that we want to, or saving, how do we nudge saving? So it turns out if we understand the way that the brain operates, the biases that influence all of us, we can then design much better products. Is it mostly combating biases? It's all helpful and interesting to know what our biases are. We tend to discount the uh, future or over-index for what we're going to do in the future, and it's never true. We tell ourselves flattering stories. There's a million of these little heuristics. Is progress, is getting people to a better place for them, mostly playing defense against these, let's call them biases or just uh, weird ideas in our head that are getting in the way? Or is it something else? Is it latching on to something positive? I think it depends on how you look at it. You can you can take any principle and have it be good or bad, right? So social norms, right? We are influenced by the behavior of others because fundamentally we are social creatures that can be used for good um, or for bad, right? We can use it in a, like, let's take savings. Savings is a really challenging one because unfortunately most of us don't save enough. So I couldn't necessarily automatically use social norms in a positive way. I couldn't say most Americans have XYZ amount in their um, emergency savings account. Um, but 
we could say we could you'd have to like kind of dig deeper to make it a positive social norm. People who retire with a million dollars generally have saved this amount or generally take on these behaviors. And so then we want to lean into that. Right, right. I had a friend who helped create a social norm around using dog leashes in cities. This was before people would leash their dogs. Wow. And you can look at it two ways. It's more like, oh my God, why would you do something so disgusting? Or as a leashed, as the owner of a leashed dog, I am contributing to my community and the overall beauty of uh, and aesthetics of my neighborhood. Yeah. And I think, but to your question about biases, you know, I think one of the things we probably just underappreciate is fundamentally that we are humans, we're social animals, we're wired for connection. And so how do we lean more into that? How should products, for example, understand that better, design better products, understanding that that kind of core assumption? Because I think we know it at the surface level, like you hear it like, yeah, 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 social connection, that's important. We all know this, it affects longevity, it affects happiness. Like we've kind of absorbed this as a, a truth, but I don't know that we fully understand, number one, the impact of it, like the magnitude of the impact. And then two, I think even like products aren't automatically thinking about, oh, how do I build that in to small features in, in my product design? Well, just as are we playing defense against biases or grasping for something uh, more enlightened, that cuts both ways. So does the idea that you were uh, just speaking about. So does connection cut both ways. So I remember when Zuckerberg a few years ago was talking all about Facebook and connections and we're connecting people in the world. And I, because I'm the kind of thinker I am, said, okay, that seems good. It's a, it's a word with uh, positive associations. And when academics list those words that make people a little smiley, connection is one. But connection among terrorist networks is bad. Connection among, I don't know, teenage girls who want to enforce anorexia norms, that's bad. A lot of the ideals of connection are also what drag us down. Yeah, and I think you point out this whole piece about uh, social media and in enabling this social comparison thing, which I think is especially sensitive in those teenage years. Um, and we're worsening. I think you take out social media from, from the dynamics, right? That's already going to happen. We already have this tendency to compare ourselves to others. And that is the thief of joy, right? Social comparison. Um, but social media in some ways can make it far too easy to, to do that. Having worked in this space, what I come out of now is just a much more nuanced appreciation for the complexity of this. There isn't like, how do you solve for good and minimize the bad when you're like, it's, it's from the outside, we can be naysayers all day long. There are many naysayers. Um, and yet once you're, once you like TikTok, let's, let's, let's pivot to TikTok and the, the example of, of the work that we did for misinformation. It is, Easy to be on the outside and to say the social media platforms, oh my gosh, there's this huge mis misinformation problem. And there is. Um, and I think, number one, there's there's appreciation and understanding from that about that at the top and their motivation to change that. And number two, it is just very, very hard. It isn't an automatic, here's a simple problem, let's address it, we're done. It actually should be a multi-pronged approach, right? You're, you don't do just the one, let me, you know, I can tell you about the intervention that we ran. Um, 
which was around. So we start with the, when we do behavioral design, you start with a literature review. There's no need to re reinvent the wheel. You look at what already has been done and how do what is the psychology of misinformation, for example. So it turns out some there's some lovely research uh, at MIT. Turns out that we actually really do value accuracy. Most people, 73% of people, value this idea of accuracy. The challenge is we don't. It's not salient to us. You don't. You don't walk around in the world right now. We're on this podcast. You're not constantly thinking about accuracy, 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 accuracy. You're going around in your day-to-day -day life. You're going to the grocery store. You're doing all these things. It's not that it's not salient to, to us. It's not top of mind. So the question is, how do you do a just-in-time, or the hypothesis was, can we do a just-in-time uh, reminder, a just-in-time intervention where we, where we notify the people at the moment of potential misinformation? By the way, outright information that's easy to deal with. You can just remove that off the platform. Yes. It's demonstrably false. Cool, we take that down. The big challenge here is the gray area. So for that space, okay, let's flag that content. Let's label it. Caution, video flagged for unverified content. We pre-tested this off the platform. We tested all kinds of different copy to identify. We did random assignment, right? We didn't, our approach isn't to say, hey, user A, would you do, let me show you this copy and this copy these different variants, how would you react? We randomly assign and then we measure differences across. So we pre-tested the copy. We landed on caution video flagged for unverified content. Caution, by the way, was a big, uh, was an important word. It, it, it predicted people, it kind of made people a little more um, alert to be like, ooh. What would, what would be some uh, synonyms that didn't work as well? Um, there was a lot of discussion around what word to use unverified so for example mm -hmm. there's a word unsubstantiated the reason we didn't want to go oh, with that yeah. is it's too it's more advanced vocabulary it's cognitively more difficult yeah so there were things like that that um we tested but actually what was interesting is we didn't find super strong effects on copy. It wasn't caution was one that's kind of stood out that was a powerful word. But in terms of um, it didn't have really, really strong differences, which then meant when we went to design the intervention for the in product experience, and then we wanted to, of course, de test different conditions. Our muscle there was not to say, let's let's test two different copy variants. It was like, let's test something significantly different. So what we did is we tested the label showing up on the video, caution, video flag for unverified content showing up immediately versus mm -hmm. showing up with a three second delay. Because in our qual research, what we did, which we did as a complement, we got some signals that, hey, if you put that, you're going to create curiosity. Right, right. Like when the newscaster says something like, if you are sensitive, you may not want to listen to this next report. And immediately your ears perk up and like, ooh, ooh I'd like to hear the next yeah, report. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's, what's going to happen now? Yeah. So there was a hypothesis that maybe we would have a backfire effect, which is what we don't want. Um, so those were our three conditions, a control group, whereas there's no intervention, the two groups, one, one immediate and one delay. And then a layered intervention that we did was based on the psychology of friction, even really, really, really small frictions matter, turns out very powerfully. So we created a friction point on the share button. So if they went to share, we just did a little pop-up and it gave them the exact same information again about the video being flagged for unverified content. And it just said, hey, are you sure? Very small friction, but these, this intervention combined, a very powerful effect, a 24% reduction in shares. 
So, and I also, I did read your white paper on this. It seemed to work better for adults or people over 35 than people under 35, right? Yeah. It, TikTok would call these, quote unquote, old people. <laughs> old people. And it also, it's because of the, the basis of when we're in a cold state, thinking more, this is stuff Dan Ariely uh, of Irrational Labs has written about. When we're in more of a cold, cool state, we uh, rationalize more. When we're in a hot state, things flashing to us, uh, we make poorer choices. Maybe younger people are in a hot state more. I think that's an interesting hypothesis. And this, you're actually getting at the point around a single intervention. We may not be done, right? We may say now, or that would be a beautiful um, sort of outcome here to say, what's the next intervention? How do these interventions fade over time? After 10 exposures, do we need an entirely different one? Um, Are there different interventions depending on the misinformation type? Uh, Do we link to other interesting content? I think a challenge here that I found at least is, so the platforms want to remain super neutral. So they want to link to WHO or they want to link to a valid outside credible source. Um, But then when you link to that, the content, it can be so dry, so not so complex. So like if you want to link to information about COVID vaccine or whatever, whatever the space is, let's take something less uh, contentious, flu vaccine, even that, you know, some of these public sources just dis- don't describe it in an easily understandable, compelling way that the average human can can digest. I, I just want to go back to TikTok for a second. You tried interventions. You found the one that worked best and the one that worked best uh, limited shares by 24%, reduced likes by 7% and views by 5%. Another way to look at that is after your intervention, 95% of the people who were originally looking at it still looked at it. And since the latest statistics, which are probably old and way too low by now, are that Americans looked at 53 billion hours of TikTok, what have you really done to save our society? Those are big words, save society, yeah. Um, so so a couple things to say here. Uh, number one, these numbers are, are really significant, 24%. If you think about the overall, like you, you've had lots of guests on here, plenty of social scientists, plenty of scientists. These are these are very large effects, especially with the scale of TikTok. These are millions, millions of, of videos. But I do- Right, right. You, you've absolutely have made millions of videos less shared. But the other way to look at it is even with the top minds in the field, we're talking Evelyn Gosnell type minds, 75% are still getting out there. 75% of I don't know if uh, how many billions of hours of misinformation, but certainly millions of hours of misinformation are still being spread. Yeah, and I think you're right to point out, like I said, the this this mere exposure effect. It's something that I'm absolutely concerned about. Um, and and this is again like why it's so important for us for for people in this space. I would love more and more and more social media um, platforms and people working on them to understand how the psychology of this actually works. Because it feels like it's good. Like, oh, we put a label on it or like we flagged it. That feels good to us, like checking the box, like we did the thing. And yet, like you're pointing out, this this repeated exposure. So what are we doing, for example, should we be designing an entirely different intervention that targets the original poster of that video and nudges them to take it down. So for example, what in psychology that I would lean into here is they've already made the video, they've put this effort in, they're proud of it, sort of the Ikea effect. I've made this investment into it. I'm really now attached to the thing that that I made. So I don't want to delete it. What if we now called it archive or 
you know, I think there could be work done there to say, how do we reduce the exposures? Could we go all the way to the very front? Imagine a world where you were signing up for any any social media platform and you were going through their onboarding process and there was a def- there was an opt-in where you could opt in in or out to any flag content, right? It's day one, you say, you know what? I don't ever wanna see flag content. Or maybe I even, if the, the more aggressive way here is just to default you and you can technically change it, but but I've, I've um, the baseline of you doing nothing would be that you would be opted out. Now we've solved for millions more impact. Um, it's a harder, um, it's a harder intervention, I think, internally to kind of absorb and say, oh yeah, we want to take a big, big swing like that. But but yeah, I think on the scale of impact, I think you would you would be several notches over. So I think you uh, have brilliant insights and are doing great work. But to just state the maximal critique, not even one, it's a little insulting, but it's like this. You remind me, or this work reminds me of just the top minds in the field of toxic waste disposal, which is, I'm sure that they could get the containers that would last, you know, supposedly 5,000 years instead of 3,000 years, unless there's a leak. There are real, I don't uh, gainsay or criticize the actual innovations that the toxic waste disposal brains have come up with. And yet, fundamentally, the best solution is to not engage in the activity that generates the toxic waste to begin with. So again, I'll I'll put that to you with all due deference. In this space, in the space of sped up social media interactions, given everything that we know about human connectivity and how curious we are and how we don't always do things that are good for ourselves, and the fact that these apps want engagement more than they want to be, you know, civically minded benefactors of society. What about that? What about just there's fundamentally going to be waste, uh, tox- toxicity <laughs> based on using these apps. Yeah. So you remind me of uh, Tristan Harris, uh, who, whom I know, and I, I respect uh, his work as well. And there's sort of, a, as you can see, a fundamental approach here to either say like, oh, wow, this is, you know, this is terrible and we're not going to, to, there's a core problem with the incentives um, and therefore it's not worth spending the time on versus saying TikTok and and other social media platforms are going to exist. They do serve some good in the world. And how do we lessen the evils, which is more of uh, the the Irrational Labs approach. And I think that's very debatable. And don't get me wrong. I would love, you know, my dream state, and I could talk to you all day about this, is like, how would we, from the outset, reinvent the phone for social connection. The phone has done so many amazing things for us in terms of how we operate in the world. Like, I don't even know how to get places like Google, like without Google, there's so many things, value adds that it has had and positive changes and yet many negative ones. And so I would love to, you know, any, any, any entrepreneurs out there willing to kind of take on this challenge of like reinventing the phone, that, that, that zero to one state to say, how would we design it from the outset to not only design for things like social connection, which we've talked about, right? We're social creatures and we should be designing products so differently. Um, but even things like productivity, our phone um, probably has negative effects there too. And, and and again, it's not like these folks aren't trying. People who work at Apple, people who work at Google, Android, they're all, all kinds of 
features that they're trying to build around, you know, um, focus mode, etc. But the onus is on the user to go figure it out, to go set it up. And I think from the very outset, we could probably reinvent this. So yeah, I would love to do that, honestly. Evelyn Gosnell is Managing Director of Irrational Labs. She is a social scientist who studies all the things that make us think or misthink. Evelyn, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mike. And now the spiel. Biden faces a difficult but familiar political test on the Supreme Court. So says the Washington Post's Daily 202. At issue is recent Supreme Court rulings, which Biden himself regarded publicly as not normal. What did he mean by calling the court not normal? He explained it to MSNBC's Nicole Wallace. What I meant by that is it's done more to unravel basic rights and basic decisions than any court in recent history. True. I would say that applies to last year's Dobbs decision, and less so to the three big decisions this year that won against the liberal three-justice minority. Affirmative action, right of businesses to discriminate, and throwing out the Biden debt relief plan. Human rights, or deleterious developments, however you look at them, those three were indeed losses to the agenda of Democrats. So how about expanding the court? When asked about that in the same MSNBC interview, Biden said, I think if we start the process of trying to expand the court, we're going to politicize it maybe forever in a way that is not healthy. So he's against expanding the court, always has been. But this puts him in poor stead with progressives, his progressive base, as the Washington Post Daily 202 column describes it. Quote, Biden is balked at endorsing a wave of new liberal demands to change the court. Goes on to say, as his re-election campaign ramps up, the president faces rising pressure to take not just recent rulings on issues like abortion affirmative action, LGBTQ plus protections and climate, but the court itself. There's just no sign he's prepared to do it the way his base wants him to. This is, as per the headline of the piece, a difficult but familiar decision. Or is it? Let's review just how much of a bind Biden is in by this difficult decision. On the one hand, he could come out for expanding the number of seats on the court. Polling shows that this is extremely unpopular. Last year, Monmouth University polled and found two-thirds of the public would support creating term limits for the Supreme Court. On with that, we take a constitutional amendment, but just 36% of the public backs expanding the size of the court beyond its current nine justices. NPR polled around the same time, found it was just 34% of the public who supports expanding the court. So the pressure would be, or is, apparently, if there is much progressive pressure, it is to do something that is quite politically unpopular. Something that he actually doesn't want to do, has never wanted to do, and has been pretty clear about why. And something, and this is an important thing to consider, something that, because of the composition of Congress, he actually can't do. He can't get an expansion of the number of seats of the court. So what pressure is there? Oh, he must be so tempted to commit to a politically harmful act he doesn't believe in that can't happen anyway. Man, how do these politicians battle all their competing interests? Well, let's talk about interests and interest groups. The progressive base wants him to do this. What price will he pay for disappointing the base? I have a rough guess. It's none. It's nothing. 
How much hold does the progressive base have over Joe Biden, especially to push him into bad, unpopular ideas? The progressive base didn't want him to be president. Now it doesn't want him to run again for president. Biden isn't listening to them. He's not really listening to anyone else who disagrees with his theory of the case that he could beat Trump. When it comes down to it, every progressive will back Biden, he thinks, no matter what, if his opponent is Donald Trump. And you know what? He is right about that. Of course he's right. What force does the progressive base have over a guy they didn't want, never liked, and is more or less serving them the bulk of their agenda while making them wish you were someone else? I mean, there is no point in Joe Biden pissing off his base for no reason. There's a good reason here. The reason is he'd rather not violate one of his own principles to do something that he correctly regards as a political disadvantage. I think the old guy still got it, it being basic garden variety political instincts. Also, if you can pack the court, which is to say if you can get to a place of a filibuster-proof majority for that, you're also going to be in the place of being able to pass student loan forgiveness via Congress, not via executive action. Well, to recap, in the history of difficult political choices, this is among the easiest political choices I've ever heard of. And even if he decides differently, nothing will change, thus making it one of the easiest calls with one of the lowest stakes, even if you were intent on stepping on a rake and getting the judgment call wrong. Politics is indeed about hard choices, but on some days, it is decidedly not, and this is such a day. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thank you for listening. <laughs>